Hello everyone, welcome to Real Stuff with me, Hunter Johnson. We live in an interesting time for masculinity. It's an inflection point, we might say. The script we've inherited from our fathers and grandfathers is being questioned. Whether it's the increasing rates of mental illness, loneliness, education dropout rates, incarceration rates or domestic violence, it's clear something needs to change. So we have to ask ourselves, are the models of masculinity we've inherited working for us? Who do we look to for role modelling and inspiration? What does modern masculinity actually look like? And how do we embody this without losing our favourite masculine traits? The Real Stuff podcast creates a space for these messy and imperfect conversations to explore modern masculinity and so much more. I hope you have a laugh, shed a tear and learn something as we explore these edgy yet important topics. This week, we have the powerful Yasmin Poole joining us. She's an award-winning speaker, writer, and youth advocate. She's a Rhodes Scholar, studies at Oxford University, sits on multiple boards, and is a regular on TV programs like The Drum and Q&A. Yasmin is passionate about issues relating to gender, feminism, and intersectionality, and she is a big advocate for inviting men along the journey to create a more equal world for all of us. Now, I do want to give you the heads up that this is a big conversation with some topics that come with a trigger warning. We discuss topics like racism, sexual assault, gender equality, feminism, intersectionality, how to be a good ally, whiteness, and trauma. If you think any of these might cause you to feel unsettled, please take care of yourself and be mindful of your own boundaries as you're listening to this. We'll also be sure to include some references in the show notes that you might find useful too. I want to say a big, big thank you to Yasmin for her generosity in having this conversation with me. I tried to make it as accessible as possible and really grab some practical takeaways for our listeners. It's definitely not perfect. It's not intended to cause harm, but it is meant to get you thinking around how healthy masculinity plays an important role in creating a more equal future for all of us. Gear up and I hope you enjoy. Yasmin Poole, super excited to be here with you. Thanks so much for making the time. I know it's a crazy time. You're studying, doing a bit of stuff on TV, op-eds in the, the papers, but really appreciative for your time. Yeah, of course. I'm excited to be here. So it is a very interesting time for this whole gender equality movement. We were just talking about how there are some really powerful, incredible women who are leading the front at the moment and we're also seeing some of these kind of older power structures of men traditionally who are really getting called out for some of these behaviors and that's really what I want to explore this podcast and I really also want to kind of break it down to like the 101 what are the basics what are the entry points that we can find for so many of those men those good men that we know who want to support this movement where do they even begin so that's the direction we'll head in but first before we do that some of our listeners would be familiar with you some of them this will be their first time hearing from you in as long as you would like could you just give us a little bit of background as to who you are yeah big question who am i who's yazan i mean i i often describe myself as youth advocate um, which entails many different kind of moving parts. So um, essentially um, I, I do a lot of advocating, especially for young women, so ensuring that young women actually have not only a space at the decision-making table but feel empowered to be able to speak about politics and the issues that affect them. 
Um, I'm also representing organisations like Plan National Australia and they do fantastic work in that space. As you mentioned, you know, media work and, and kind of once again drawing attention to young women in those environments where we don't often have a youth voice across, you know, TV shows and those platforms as well. And I'm also sitting on a couple of boards. So YWCA Australia, which has is a leading feminist organisation, has been there for 140 years supporting women and girls and also Oz Harvest. So they're an amazing food waste charity that is just showing kind of just how far charities can go in doing all of the things and helping all of the people. So I feel really lucky to be to be doing that as well. Amazing. And I know that's just a slither of what else is on your plate too. Have you always had an interest in social change and making a difference? Was that something that was always there for you? It was always there, but I think I couldn't quite define it. I think I, I felt growing up, especially, you know, seeing things like racism and discrimination, especially against my mum is something that I really felt. And when she would share her story to me about growing up as a you know, woman in Singapore and then coming to Australia as a Muslim migrant, I really resonated with that. But I definitely think during high school, I was just trying to find my path. So you know, I, I, was, I thought about so many different careers. First, it was like communications, and then it was like law, something like ambiguous about being a lawyer. So in a way, I think this journey kind of found me in a sense. So I just started to start being in spaces around youth empowerment and youth leadership. And I got really excited and energised seeing young people advocating for things that they were passionate about. And it kind of kind of led me down this place of saying, well, why don't our structures and our institutions look like these amazing people that I'm working with every day? And why don't they reflect my ex- lived experience and many other people um, who also come from diverse backgrounds? So that's kind of how it started. And it's I feel really, really lucky to have the freedom to be able to talk about these things and hopefully make a difference in wherever I may be. I think, first of all, you are making a difference, but also real special to hear your mum's journey of you know growing up and for you personally seeing such a strong woman change countries but then also into a country that does have a racist underbelly what were some of the things that you saw as you know a daughter of your mum well I think the big one that stayed with me was after 9-11 and her experiences in that and I was too young I would have been like three or four so I, I hadn't you know I couldn't understand it at the time but she actually stopped wearing the hijab because of the responses she'd get you know, wherever she went and the kind of sacrifices that she had to make there. And then also we lived, I moved a lot. So I went to eight different schools when I was young, so yeah. all over. But we had a stint in, in the country and kind of starting to become aware that people often didn't look like me and especially didn't look like my mom. So, you know, the kind of responses when she would turn up even to school and the way that other parents would speak down to her. And even then I could kind of understand that or the way that kids would notice that she has darker skin and feeling really you know, embarrassed and trying to work through that as a, as a young child. So for me, I think my moment of agency, and I often talk about this story, was when I was in year 11 and I did a speech about Islamophobia because that was when ISIS was a really big news story and just hearing people, my peers and my friends, even talking about a Muslim ban. And I think it was just the kind of culmination of this silence and feeling like I had to endure it and saying, no, I want to say something. And you know, having my mum, she, she was, I didn't let her come to the audience. I didn't want her to hear. I was too embarrassed. But she eventually did hear that speech and being able to talk about that frustration I felt was actually really liberating rather mm. than dealing with it silently. 
Wow, I got shivers as you're telling that story and I think the, the power of speaking truth to power actually is the way to summarise that. And again, did you, like were you always born with this gusto? Like is that something that you inherited from your mum, you know, the father figure in your life? Like where did that come from? You know, you're someone who would identify in a minority group, you know, a young women in a very, you know, male-dominated society to step forward in front of your school assembly but also to have the self-awareness to not want your mum there because of the pain it might or even the shame that it might create for her but then to still choose to do that really takes some serious character where did this come from yeah good question um i i don't know if it came from a particular place i think outside of my work I'm you know, pretty chill. I definitely don't go around debating with everyone I can meet. So for me, it takes a lot of emotional energy to do this work. And you know, every time I am speaking about this, it, it isn't something, it, it of course gives me energy, but it also takes a toll. But I just think it's the right thing to do. And growing up, I was always interested in politics. But I think increasingly, I got really frustrated that people and decision making didn't look like me and didn't look like people like my mom and would say a lot of ignorant things that create that kind of stigma and bias so it just felt like something that you know I, I felt frustrated about and then I think through my advocacy like I said meeting all those young people it kind of gave me the confidence and the strength and also a feeling of permission that I actually can speak out about these things and I've been so inspired seeing other young women do this and it I think the way that they're cutting through shows that it's important so I don't think it was a particular thing but I definitely think it was my mum first just telling me those stories and and being you know seeing how she didn't have the space to raise these things so she's a nurse so she doesn't have that platform so feeling like almost a sense of responsibility that I need to, to raise these things in, in the space that I'm in. Yeah, it sounds like it's a sense of duty to, to yeah. you know, st- stand on the shoulders of giants, which in this case happens to be your, your mother. I think that's a, extraordinary. And I think you are now surrounded by a community of very incredible young women who are in the public eye, who are advocating for a more equal Australia. A lot of guys that I speak with think and often share that they're like listen we want a more equal world but as far as we can see it it looks pretty equal to us and i've never done anything wrong so why am i getting called out have you had any conversations with men like this in your time i think with the men that i surround myself with it isn't as i think usually they are realizing that there's a difference but i think especially growing up in high school was when i kind of experienced that you know, it's funny because I just found out yesterday I got accepted into a Master's of Gender Studies and I was thinking about it and I was like, huh, because when I was 14, back then I was actually embarrassed to call myself a feminist. And the reason mm. why was because the guy that I liked at the time said, oh, you're not one of those people, are you? You don't have unshaved armpits and you don't walk around with protest signs and kind of scoffed about it and said, oh, you know, women are so privileged because he was from the US. So women are so privileged in, privileged in Western societies. What about, you know, he said, of course, there are women in you know, poorer countries, but he couldn't see the problem. And I think for me, it actually, for me, it took a lot of unlearning because, you know, when we talk about this problem, if, even if we start there in high school, the way that young women are conditioned to accept things like harassment, sexual harassment, um, pressuring, even sexual assault, and Chanel Contos, who you'll interview soon, um, raised that issue through her petition with, with thousands and thousands of testimonies. So I think 
what I've encountered is I think young men feeling quite defensive about the word feminism, feeling like that's an attack on their rights and who they are as people, rather than seeing what it might feel like as a young woman experiencing that harassment or discrimination, even from, you know, as young as the age of 11 or 12. I also just want to say, as we have this conversation, I want to pick up on a thread that you said before, if this does get a bit emotionally draining or overwhelming, please let me know and we'll kind of elevate out of the the trench we're in. But I just want to say thanks for sharing so wholeheartedly with us because I know for a lot of men who are listening and a lot of people who are listening, they do really want to help. And so having and hearing from someone with a lived experience of whether it's racism, misogyny, abuse, um, or living in a very male-dominated society, for them to actually step outside of their conditioning and hear a lived experience can be profoundly eye-opening and perspective-shifting. Yeah. Also, like, you know, I'm just thinking about my experience even as young as then and, and feeling ashamed about the word feminist. You know, even the guy that I just spoke about, he pressured me to send nude photos and I was 14 at the time, and he was 17. And it's these kind of power imbalances that so many other young women could resonate. And I remember feeling that pressure, but have nev- I've never had the conversation with anyone about how to deal with that. And actually, the words that I repeated to myself when I felt uncomfortable, because I was, especially then, I was a big people pleaser, so I didn't really know how to s- assert firm boundaries. And I said the words, boys will be boys, in my head. And I would repeat that to myself. And I think back and I'm like, where did I even learn that from? But just somewhere I had thought boys would be boys. And I didn't, I wasn't given the tools to, to stand up for myself and to also realise that that's wrong to be pressured. So I think especially back then, and that was 2013 to 2014, there wasn't conversations about yeah. what that means to, to have respectful relationships, as they call it. But to understand what you're comfortable with and not comfortable with. And I think lots of young women haven't been told that they can say no um, and they can say, I'm not comfortable with that. So I think that's when I talked about unlearning. It took for me a lot of unlearning to to say not only no, but even in the public space now to advocate. That also requires a lot of unlearning because there's so much pressure on young women to be silent and to nod and to smile and to please everybody. I think on that thread, you've just written an op-ed, an opinion piece in the paper i'm wondering if you could just talk to us around even the title of that but then what was the the main points in that i think it was something along the lines of why young women won't smile for you anymore but it was basically after grace tame was photographed next to the prime minister and she didn't smile at him she shook his hand but she didn't smile at him and it created this whole media uproar and what was really disappointing is that some of the first voices to come out swinging against her were men and men in very privileged positions. So men in top media roles or male politicians who are elected to represent the community. And I first of all thought it was so ridiculous that this is someone's choice not to smile at what is clearly a photo op. But for me, it pointed to, I think, a more concerning undertone that if these men are willing to come out swinging against something that small, what's happening behind the scenes and behind closed doors, especially against women. So, you know, there are women like Julia Banks who have talked about the pressure and the bullying she experienced in Parliament and, of course, Brittany Higgins and both male and female decision-makers that turned away. I think my concern is that there are these men using their platform to essentially shame somebody over over just refusing to smile and asserting her boundaries and where she's what she's comfortable with 
so I think it shows a I think a concerning picture of the nature of power and how that operates and especially them using a public platform to make that claim I just I'm concerned about what's happening even within that and behind that yeah it's pretty full-on isn't it when you think about it I I often wonder if these men are conscious or if men and myself included are conscious of the certain behaviors that are being lived out that cause situations like this and we run man cave which is a part of stuff but basically it's programs for boys that really get them to kind of explore their own social conditioning the script of masculinity they've inherited and they get to question it what's working for us what's not working for us holy crap we're on autopilot just living it out and one of the biggest insights we get in our program is these boys live in this culture of banter and banter is seen as like a currency that the sharper your tongue the more social credit you get and it becomes um, this way of keeping status inside of their social group and what we often find is the boys don't realize that the banter more often than not crosses the line into bullying but that just becomes the way of communicating so they almost don't know any different so even the kid who is the bully doesn't want to be the bully when you actually get him down to it and the kid who is at the receiving end of being bullying will push back by bullying others and so you just create this cycle of bullying and then they grow up with that and often when we with groups of boys to slow it down enough and then they go oh shit i don't even want to be speaking like that i just don't know how to not they have this big opening often they get quite emotional and they apologize for their behavior and they get to see another way forward but if they're not given that and they're living inside of a male culture that is about the banterish and don't go any deeper than that because it's not psychologically safe it does result in these very hardened opinionated men often and that's to not to make them wrong or anything or to shame them but it's a reality that i'm sure we can all see so my question is is how you know i think about this saying privilege is often invisible to those who have it so if you're asking what privilege is it's likely that you have a level of privilege because you've never had to learn what it is where do we begin to start to educate men like this who want to make a difference but they have to unlearn some of these behaviors Mm, that's a good question i mean first i want to touch upon that point about privilege you know even talking about the way that it starts with banter but then thinking about institutions that are spaces of power like politics you know the one clear sign of privilege is am I the only person in the room who looks like me and a lot of the time you know including in my work I am so in spaces of of politics there's a ton of white men especially those that are older which means that often they'd have similar lived experiences similar views and if they speak up in a room they're more likely to be supported because it might align with other people in that room whereas if you're the only let's say woman you're the only person of color there it is true that the world looks different from your eyes so to raise these things means that it might feel uncomfortable but when the entire room doesn't look like you that uncomfortable that feeling of making it comfortable can become exclusion it can become something more sinister where you don't belong or you don't fit in so that's you know one of the spaces of privilege and I think people who often are in places that look exactly or similar to them don't realize that it feels that way for people who don't look like that and that's something that I've become increasingly aware of in my work so so starting from there it's so so important to be supporting I think those especially who wouldn't have that support otherwise that don't look like you to really be listening carefully to what they have to say because it's a really big emotional toll to speak about this um you know, I just talked about young women. 
takes a hell of a lot of bravery, but also, as we talked about grace, public slander to come forward and raise these issues. So I think it's on all of us to at least step back for a moment and to work through that Im- immediate defensiveness that we might feel when we're, we're challenged or we're saying, you know, this, there is a problem that we haven't seen before, to think about, well, maybe is there a problem? And to be curious enough to investigate that. And you talked about older men, and I think it's a hard one. I think I'm not as sure about how we can navigate older generations, but I think for young men, first of all, it starts with identifying that feeling of discomfort that might immediately arise or uncomfortable or even anger and just sitting with that for a Mm. little bit and saying, well, why do I feel angry? Because it isn't just a gender thing. There's inequalities all around the world from race to class, you know, First Nations communities. For people who are on the side of those who are privileged or historically have oppressed, we need to work through that emotionally. And change isn't all about systems and structures. It's also about emotions. So I think it's, you know, a sign of a mature person that they can work through that immediate gut feeling and emotion and just to try to imagine, you know, if I woke up one day as a young woman and if I was experiencing, you know, guys pressuring me or if I'm in parliament even um, and looking at places that don't look like me, how would that feel? And just trying to, to see from that space, I think that's maybe the first step to trying to kind of cut down some of that discomfort that might immediately arise. And I think uh, many things in that, but I really want to hone in on the desire to just sit with. So don't try fix, don't try solve, but actually just sit in the discomfort. And I think my journey with inside of just exploring my own privilege, exploring my own unconscious bias has been initially like, oh shit, am I a bad guy? And then sitting in this what felt like guilt going i thought i was a really good guy but then along the journey realizing that they're particularly for someone who looks like me kind of white cisgendered male one of the worst things that i can do is actually just sit in that guilt and attract more attention to me so a a big part of my journey has been like okay cool so where to from here how do i absorb and i remember i was um catching up with a friend who, who you might know another yasmin actually yasmin abdel magid we're having a kebab on Smith Street in, uh, in Melbourne, in Collingwood. And um, she said this line, this was probably, I don't know, maybe six years ago to me, that often it's on the minority to educate the privileged. And she's like, when does it get to a point where those in power and privilege actually, in, in a mass way, go and start to understand the lived experience of some of the most disadvantaged minority groups? And I remember that just stuck with me because I was like, yeah, I was expecting to be educated. But actually that, to your point, what you already wrote, that must be so exhausting. Every conversation having to just give your point of view, here it is again. And it actually just kind of takes a bit of your, your soul every time. And I think that was a big part for me just to go, okay, so if I'm really serious about creating a more equal world, not just for me, but for you know the young people who are coming up, okay, there is a real responsibility to do something about this. And so actually going reading and listening to first-person accounts of some of, you know, First Nations people, culturally and linguistically diverse people, or just people who live a very different life experience to me has been incredibly eye-opening. And I've still got a long way to go in this space. But I think just for anyone listening, like there's some early entry points into understanding um, where to begin and where you can go. And I think also what you said, like, when you look in the mirror, who do you see? You know, for a long time, I just saw Hunter, not like a white dude who grew up in Sydney and spent a bit of time in hipster Melbourne. And, you know, actually just getting a little bit objective over my life experience has been really transformative for me. 
And then I think to, to your point, just the power of listening, actually going out of my way to sit in discomfort. And if I do get triggered, going, oh, shit, why am I triggered? Why am I getting defensive about this and getting curious about it? And I mean, I wanted to also raise on that point about privilege. The point about privilege is it's not to say that because, you know, let's say you're white or a man, you can never experience hardship. That's not what people are trying to say. And that's that's certainly not the point. It's all that privilege means is my life or your life hasn't been made harder because of something like racism or because of something like sexism. So it's these added layers on top of other, you know, problems that we might experience. And I think being conscious of that, that it just hasn't been made harder because of those things, that can help I guess, push the point that it's not saying that someone's life is perfect because of the way that they're born, but there are other factors at play for other people that they that are also stand as barriers or walls. I think that's such an important point that I don't hear raised enough because I know just even in my experience, but also guys I chat with or just programs that we run is a lot of these guys are feeling like they're attacked and they're like, hey, listen, my life has been really hard to me and suddenly now you're telling me I'm privileged and things have been easy and i think that's a really interesting point that like struggle is very relative so the things that i've gone through the demons i've moved through in my life have been really hard to me that doesn't necessarily from what i'm hearing you're saying mean that i'm things have been easy but you know there are certain doors um, that open for me just by looking like what i look like totally exactly so i also really want to break it down because Again, what I want for this potty is just for like just the entry point for people to kind of understand. So when you think of feminism or if you identify as a feminist, what does that mean to you? Well, to me, feminism is freedom, bottom line. It's freedom for everyone to be themselves and not be constrained by the pressures and the structures around us that dictate how we should act based on gender and gender norms. So for me, feminism encompasses women. It also encompasses gender diverse people, people who are non-binary. And in a sense, it also encompasses men. So it's thinking about the way that we've all been conditioned to act or behave or think um, based on our gender and trying to, to unpack that and unlearn that, but then also challenge spaces like politics to truly be diverse and to truly embrace all of us in our diversity. So I think feminism is about freedom but it's also thinking about all of the structures in the world around us that constrain us and silence us and thinking about how we can do things better and what role can men play in supporting the feminist movement and and does it help men first of all men can be feminists that's the biggest thing and i think a lot of men think that feminism is just about women getting the upper hand advantage but Truly, feminism says we're not happy with the state of the world as it is. And that includes the reality for men. Because, you know, you mentioned the kind of, even in schools and spaces like that, banter. And and men often, young boys, feeling like they can't speak up and feeling embarrassed to do so. Well, we're not happy with that either. So, you know, I think it starts... It starts there. I remember it just reminded me of a program that we ran once where we got boys to write down on post-it notes what do they what do they call a man who has slept with a lot of women. And we got them to write it up, put it on the board, and then we said, what do you guys call a woman who has slept with a lot of men? And the contrast was like, for men, was like player, legend, big dog, I think a few other expletives in there. And then for the first time they saw you know what they were saying for women was like slut skank like and it just kept going but they'd never slowed down and 
fair enough, they hadn't done it, to see the contrast of what that is, of the two, like the dichotomy of the complete different rules we have for the, the two different language points and it really opened them up the next activity we got them to do was to write down oh sorry we got them sitting in a in a like a tight circle and we showed them like 40 different photos that are like display photos and we said we're just gonna show you these photos just be silent from here we'll show you those photos again and we'll get you to yell out whatever comes to mind so we're sitting all together we dim the lights we play some like music in the background and they just watch the photos all different faces pop up then the next time we get them to we turn the music up a little bit louder we say yell out whatever you want go through the photos again and they're like mates laughter funny you know good time friends loser bitch skank and it just escalated and we were just writing them down it goes for about a minute and a half we pause that the boys are laughing their heads off because they've had free reign and we just go all right how was that for you guys and they're like oh it was pretty funny like da 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 laughing and we said cool so why do you think we got you to do this exercise they're like i don't know just to see what would happen we're like yeah why else and this one kid goes oh we just want to see like you know how would we we'd act as a group i'm like cool how do you guys think you went and then we looked over at the whiteboard and just circled all the, like, the, I guess the payouts that they said and kind of some of the more expletive things like skank and slut and bitch and, like, all the vocab of a teenage boy. And we said, now, what would it mean to you guys if we told you that all these people were our Facebook friends, people that we've gone, hung out with, some of our closest friends, our parents are in there. What would that mean to you guys now? And they just stopped and they were like, oh my god we're so sorry so sorry please don't tell the teacher and we're like we're not here to tell the teacher we've got permission from all those people but what's changed now and what opened up was this deeply profound conversation where the boys got to recognize that when they were in a group how that gave them more power where they felt like they could say whatever they could hide amongst others how then they one-upped each other in which to like get that story out or get that payout out quicker But then at the end of it, they were like, wow, we see how this plays out everywhere. Thanks for showing this to us. I'm like, yeah. And you guys, uh, you have agency. You know, you're able to make these decisions on on the fly. So next time you see this happen, what can you do? So we started mapping out the tools they could have in their life. And that's often what I find with, you know, the tens of thousands of boys we work with. They actually want to be great men, 100%. But there's not many role models out there that show them how to deal with situations like that or how to be a you know if they see something happening to someone on a tram or whatever what to actually do about it or in a boardroom setting where someone mansplains or talks over someone what to do about it so they just don't have these practical tools from here with the whole movement that you're creating and alongside some very incredible women like what is the change you guys are hoping to see in this whole movement the change that we're hoping to see, I think it's hard to summarise it in exactly one mm. sentence, but, you know, taking the words of the campaign I was recently involved with, it's safety, respect and equity. Mm. And I think we can all agree that every single person, no matter where you come from, where, wherever you come from, deserves safety and respect. And how we get there is equity. You know, thinking about the barriers that were in place to, to groups and are still in place, things like racism and sexism and things like class, you know moving through that together so there are different ways that we can do that you know we talked about schools so it's really exciting to see mandatory consent education but it needs to go further than that because it isn't just about consent it's about power imbalances and 
not only educating young men but also young women about what those power imbalances look like and how do we listen and how do we support others who are bravely speaking up as well so in those situations that you mentioned um you know what is the role of of young men in this space i think that's a really important conversation that you know i don't know if it's just that schools have to have i don't Mm. think it's just schools it it also happens at home in family in terms of role modeling modeling we're also looking for political change so there's so much that the government can do but first of all to ensure that parliament is first of all safe as the highest political institution it shouldn't be a big ask but Mm. the reality is it's not safe especially for women and people who are marginalized you know things like better funding around domestic violence and prevention is is really the key word here all the way to things like in the workplace actually having policies and laws that prevent sexual harassment and assault and creating you know support spaces there so you can see there's so many different threads to it but it comes down to safety and respect and the thing that I think that I'm particularly passionate about is changing the minds of decision makers and changing the structures so we can actually see ourselves spoken for and represented and it's funny because during March for Justice there's just this visual that will always stay with me because I went to the protest in Canberra and I remember looking at just a whole sea of mainly women but also men, diverse women from all different backgrounds and then looking at Parliament House and thinking about the disconnect that we have to march for our lives all the way up to Canberra for a Prime Minister that didn't meet with us, that didn't want to come out. And a lot of the time it was you know, trying to convince politicians to listen and care. The fact that there were no young women in that place that had a platform to be able to advocate for us. So I think it's that gap that I really want to think about and how our democracy mm. can better you know, engage with all of our voices rather than amplifying others. Yeah, and just to think about, like, it, it, surely from a very logical point of view, it makes sense to have our elected officials represent us. Bottom line, right? right. But then, it, it, yeah. but then it, I mean, let's think about that. Why? Why is it that it isn't diverse? And, and I was actually, you know, reflecting on this, that a few years ago I spoke to Parliament of Victoria but to a group of young women of colour and I was speaking to them about leadership and then I looked at the walls and all the portraits were of men and older men and it's just this difference between seeing the all the inspiring incredible young women but think about the pressures and the the constraints that they might be under in their families in communities but also in politics not being taken seriously not feeling comfortable to be in these spaces feeling very uncomfortable and feeling like the outsider you know that's the kind of again the toll that it takes on on people to push and to advocate to be there just at this point in the conversation, I just really want to make it clear that we're not like pointing the finger at anyone. We're not saying this is about shaming men, telling men how to live their life. But what I think I hope is coming out is like there is just some real imbalances here. And for anyone that's feeling a bit uncomfortable about this, like, great. <laughs> like, that's a really healthy feeling to be feeling right now. And I think using these moments and as, as teachable moments, I think, is, is the way that I would frame it. The next piece inside of that is how do we start to move forward? Say if I'm a man and I'm listening to this right now or if I'm you know, someone who is raising young men or someone who just wants to be an ally, where do we go? Like what's the starting point? We, can, we choose to educate ourselves, but what does like 
And maybe if you have any examples, that would be really great. If there any examples of men who have been phenomenal allies, I think would be really special to hear. Well, you know, I think something I noticed actually during that movement last year, women, is that many of the men that came up and spoke about this also came from diverse backgrounds. I thought that was really interesting. So there was people like Benjamin Law, who is a Asian-Australian gay man, has spoken up many we times about this. We love Ben. Yeah. yeah. Um, also, you know, other men who have experienced, you know, for example, their sisters or, you know, mothers experienced, experiencing domestic violence, realising that we need to speak up before it's too late, being honest about their trauma, but also seeing that as a sign to, to, to speak up about that. So, you know, I think that was... It was really interesting seeing that. And I think it helps to to understand, and as we're talking about masculinity, to see this in a nuanced way. So men aren't all the same. Men don't all come from the same backgrounds. They're diverse just as women are diverse. So I think reflecting on where we sit in the world with all of our nuances and the way that we often talk, we speak about this as intersectionality. So thinking not just in terms of gender, but of race and of, of class and other areas about our lives is important because I think once if men can kind of sit back and think about all the different intersecting parts of them it helps to kind of color that picture rather than thinking it's men versus women but it's freedom mm. for all of us and that's where it starts but there are really really powerful voices in this conversation we talked about Grace and, and Brittany but also a number of other female advocates First Nations advocates especially women in that in that space so to start by I think, first of all, listening, and, and it'll always come back to listening, but introspecting. And the reality is there's bias and discrimination everywhere. And it's so, so easy to absorb that and to just slip up and just to be thinking in this way. And if we're saying it to ourselves, not saying it out loud, but to actually kind of rewire the way that we might gut instinct feel about something and realize it doesn't just come from nowhere it comes from the messages all around us it comes from our dads or it comes from our parents and it comes from media and our schools and all of that so just thinking about maybe what is it what is it saying and can we be brave enough to challenge that and I think we all can be yeah I think we, we all can be and I think when it gets slowed down enough and you know where we can be with the things that have pissed us off or triggered us or we feel are unjust often it's just our humanity at our core we actually all want everyone to do well i think they're definitely biased in that belief but i'm also starting to think you know i've got i've got two younger sisters who are now 20 and 19 and i'm thinking about the world that they're going to inherit and i also think about the education that they have around these topics around power around privilege around sexual coercion um intersectional feminism it's like there's a whole language and a whole vocabulary and i don't want to throw my younger brother under the bus but i will um he's 17 year old he works as a heavy diesel mechanic apprentice and he's in environments where he's not having conversations like this so what i'm observing is like it's almost like that the conversation is heating up the education required to keep up is getting more and more intellectual, which is, I think, a really healthy, good thing, but also creates more of a division for a lot of men who want an entry point into this conversation. But it's difficult to, to know where to begin. We now live in a time where cancel culture is a huge thing and, you know, there's wokeness is now seen as something that's a negative thing. Again, in conversations that I've had with a lot of men is like, hey, I'm just actually just really fearful to put my point of view on the table because I want to raise it but I'm worried that if I do raise it I'm going to get unfairly judged or people will think I don't agree with equality 
but I want to raise my point of view. And what I'm hearing and seeing is that they're now not raising that point of view. They're just holding it back together. They'll go have the conversation at the water cooler or down at the pub or whatever. Um, and they feel like the, it's moving without them, but they just don't know how to get in. So how do you think about all that with like woke culture, more lang- technical language going on, but then also you've got a lot of men who want to support, but it's heating up. I can understand why it feels scary. I also think though, when we have these conversations, we have to think about, well, who is the group that is saying that they feel discriminated against and harmed? What is the power or lack of power that they usually have to raise these things? Because I think a lot of times especially right-wing commentators make it seem like it's just you know one-to-one someone debating but someone has less privilege and less right compared to someone else who might be you know speaking and using their voice so so one example was of the men that came out swinging against Grace Tame that I mentioned they have extraordinary power and privilege and it might be something that they're genuinely thinking but had they stepped back for a moment and reflected on why again they're feeling this way maybe that they didn't need to use their platform because it ended up being, you know, quite quite damaging and a lot of, you know, tension um, on Grace for, for something that was so small. So I think that, you know, there's, there's power in, first of all, asking questions. There's nothing wrong with asking questions and wanting to learn. I think the issue is when something is said like it's an undeniable truth or fact and that can be really harmful to people, especially those who are discriminated against, who are saying that's not matching with the reality that I live and experience in. So we need to be conscious of those power imbalances. I even work through this with issues that I might not have experienced directly. But even in those spaces, like for example, I'm not First Nations, but to try to to amplify and support where I can and, and listen is really important. So yeah, I think there's, you know, there, there is power, I think, in, in asking questions first and being aware of where you stand in the world so before coming out to say this is absolutely what's going on to realize you know I've grown up seeing the world in this way but that's just the way that I see things other people see it in that way too so I think breaking down that you know immediate kind of social media style of of arguing or saying this is the correct way to be open to reorientate and change and it starts by asking questions including to people around us people that we love and trust who are willing to listen even if you feel you know embarrassed or ashamed who would be willing to indulge that and for me even with my partner right he's a white man I feel really heard and understood by when we speak about these things but there are also things that he hasn't realized about my life but the power of that is that he listens and it's really nice to feel heard bottom line and I think if we start from that point, we, we get a lot further. And I think we see a lot of common ground because he puts his ego to one side and, and actually wants to figure out what the world looks like for me. Mm. What does that practically look like inside of your relationship dynamic? How does he listen? How does he put his ego to the side? Well, first of all, he doesn't get upset or angry if I talk about whiteness, if I talk about um, masculinity. He sees as well other men in his life that react in this way and you know, we have friends and, you know, this friend a lot of the time, you can see how masculine expectations have shaped him. So, you know, feeling like he needs to get the rich, white, hot, blonde girl and, you know, misogynistic kind of behaviour. He sees those kind of people in his life and we have conversations about him, about that. 
um, you know, talking about his experience, he growing up saw men that he didn't want to be like. He saw bad examples and he said he made that choice. I don't want to be like that. And I think making that choice, first of all, I don't want to be like the bad examples that I've seen rather than saying that I should be that. That takes a lot of strength to unlearn maybe some of the things that we've grown up seeing. And that includes even with dads or even with grandparents who can be and do sexist things and to say, I can be different. So, you know, I I think he's a really good example of someone who is just really open-minded and gives me and other people and other ideas the space to be heard. And that's where it starts. Um, What I hear in that is he's curious. He's curious about your inner world and your lived experience. And a great lesson that I've learned is when in doubt, be authentic. So if I feel a bit nervous asking the question or if I'm like, I don't know if I'm going to say this right, I literally say, I feel a bit nervous. I don't think I'm going to say this right. Yeah. And can I also say, like, I've made mistakes too about his masculinity. I remember once I was um, on a panel and I was saying, you know, talking about often white men, I was saying white men feel often a lot more confident to ask for what they want and demand for more. And I said, oh, you know, my partner is super confident, you know, saying whatever he wants to say. And he said afterwards, he was like, actually, I had to work on that. I didn't immediately feel confident just because I was a a white guy. I actually had to gain that confidence over time. So while we can acknowledge that he is privileged to be able to raise the things that he cares about to push and he might be heard more from society that isn't to say that men don't have to work on their stuff and don't have to work and embrace being confident and there's also nothing wrong with being confident so we've also had to talk about what that looks like for him too and I find that really interesting to see how that works and you know something that I've also gained from having these conversations is the pressure on men to feel like they need to know the answers and I found that really interesting how that played out in politics because we saw someone like Scott Morrison trying to always be the person in charge to be the person who says I totally understand what is happening but maybe the most powerful thing would have been I haven't experienced this but let me listen and if he had listened wouldn't have that have been a better example of how to handle things rather than trying to navigate something that you just don't know what it's like if you haven't been on the other end so I I think breaking down that feeling of needing to be right and correct and the anger um, associated with someone telling you you're wrong, that's something that was interesting to me. Yeah, and I think I just want to pick up on that point around leadership styles. It's, you know, we, we are now moving into an incredibly volatile and complex world, more so than ever before, and it is increasingly going to be like that. And there is a real inherent danger if we are just following a leader who always has the answer themselves. And what we're now known, I talked about this on a recent episode with Tom Harkin, who works with top executive coaches, is by us bringing into, as men, some of the more traditionally feminine leadership qualities, and that doesn't mean female, but feminine leadership qualities around empathy, kindness, nurturing, like listening deeply, listening to intuition and gut, asking for help when required, that actually expands our ability to be a high-performing and effective leader because the role of, whether you're in a C-suite role or someone who you know has drive and ambition in your career, they are incredible skills because there's no way you're going to have all the answers. We're moving out of the industrial complex of the military model of chief 
operating officer and chief executive officer and the general manager, which is all still military terms and very hierarchical in their nature, to more flatter structures, more organic structures, more organism structures. So it is a really interesting time for leadership. And I think, you know, my hope is with this next crop, yourself included, who are moving into these kind of the public eye, but also the political eye, that these are just built in foundational qualities. And there's a beautiful, uh, incredible not-for-profit in Melbourne called Igniting Change. And one of the like kind of guiding mottos is working with very marginalised communities is meet the people and feel the issues. Meet the people, feel the issues. So instead of us making a decision on behalf of a group of people, how do we go and actually have a conversation, sit down with them, meet them, not just for the photo or the video, but actually understand what that person or those people are feeling and what they need? Yeah, totally. I mean, there's just... Yeah, there's so much to pick up on that. It's so important that I think men can work through these things and actually, yeah, sit with that. And in all of my work, I've been talking about the importance of of having that platform and, and space. And so often it seems like we're making decisions without talking to people that actually do need to be consulted. Talking about the idea of kind of feminine leadership is, is really interesting because I think if men want to embrace these qualities, it also creates space for new and diverse leadership. So there's really interesting research and I love reading the research from Dr. Blair Williams from ANU. He does a lot of work on gendered leadership and assumptions. Is that women often experience this double bind where if they seem too feminine, they're seen as not leaders. But if they're seen as too masculine, they're also seen as bitchy, rude, arrogant, also not appropriate for leadership. So women face this pressure, this tightrope, if you will, to be seen as caring and compassionate, but also assertive enough um, to demonstrate leadership. And when you're in a space where most of the men are leaders, that's really hard and sometimes even impossible to show that. Whereas if men are traditionally masculine leadership, they're more, more likely to be accepted and promoted and not really questioning it. Whereas I think if men, like you said, embrace things like care and compassion and nurture women also have the space to lead in whatever form of leadership is comfortable for them. And the same thing goes for people of colour. You know, as an Asian Australian, I hear a lot that Asian Australians, we often sit back and we don't speak up unless we feel like there's really something to say. Whereas in other cultures, it is more loud and it is dominating the conversation. So if we're willing to also challenge our own style of leadership, we open our minds to what leadership can be. I love that so much. And I think what I want to share with anyone who is listening is this is a muscle to develop. It's not something that just gets turned on. And, you know, if I even reflect on my journey, the I've made so many fuck-ups in this space, like so many. I, I could list a couple easy off the top of my head, which I still cringe at. I remember when I flew down to Melbourne when I was 20, I'd grown up, you know, in, in a masculine culture loved footy it was just i just that was my world and i remember i had a job interview with um a guy <laughs> oh god i'm already cringing talking about it and i just had my knee operated on I'd done my acl had my knee operated on and he was like oh i've done my acl too like how's the rehab going and as a 20 year old i went I was just panicked and I was like, oh, yeah, it's all right. The knee exercises are a bit gay, but, you know, whatever. This is 10 years ago. And I just watched his eyebrow raise and I was like, oh, yeah, okay. And anyway, kept going. And then I remember on the way home and I called my mom to talk about the interview and I was like, yeah, but I had this weird moment. I said this. I don't know why I said it. I'm not in high school and even then it's not okay. But I said it and she goes, oh, you didn't say it to 
ex person, did you? And I was like, uh, yeah, she goes, you know, he's gay. And I was like, oh, oh my no. God. And I just remember for like every 10 minutes for like the next four days, I'd be like, fuck. Yeah. And, uh, cringe attack. Yeah, cringe. And, just, and then, you know, I've had moments where in yeah. front of First Nations people, you know, I've said something, we're running like a, just a, an event. And I said, I didn't even get given the script. I got told what to say. Sorry, I didn't even write the script. I got told what to say. I was talking about our tribe vibe. And it was for this organization I was working for. Didn't think about it. Then the person who is a First Nation person called me aside and said, hey, I just want to let you know that was really insensitive. And I was like, oh, and I went into defense and then I went into, you know what, I'm just going to listen here. And so, I, you know, I've just been riddled with stories like that. And it's been a real journey for them to be teachable moments and me to go, okay, cool, this isn't about me. Don't take more attention my way. But actually, how do I, again, now have this self-awareness and where I can support other people on that journey too. And the big, a big thing for me, which I want to share as well, is I realized it's not my fault that I've been conditioned in a certain way but it is my responsibility to do something about it and so that's been a big journey as well can I like on that point about defensiveness can I just share a story that I experienced that that made me realize actually that so much of this is emotional rather than just logical debate this is how we're thinking and feeling as human beings this was a really big eye-opening moment for me was two years ago I was part of a scholarship program and part of that they had weekly panels about various issues and I noticed that on a panel it was about women in leadership and I noticed that there weren't any women of colour and as someone who's Asian Australian I said that's a missed opportunity because if it was diverse there's so many other facets of female leadership we could talk about. So I decided to send the organiser who was a man in his 60s just raising that might be worthwhile getting a woman of colour, suggested a couple of names I ended up at the time, one of my friends who was also knew that person who was organizing it, knew them well. I was in the car with them actually. So this friend gets a call and it's from the organizer and he puts on the speaker. And this person says, I just got the nastiest email from Yasmin Poole. She was saying terrible things and she, you know, was, you know, trying to, to, shame this panel and um you know how dare she do this I've lost total respect for her and was really going off for a good hour and this is again a man in his 60s senior management position I'm just a university student saying things you know she's trying to use being a young woman of color to advance herself and it was a lot and at the moment at the time and still it was really really hard to hear because of course it wasn't true it was very respectful but it was just one little insight into what happens even if it feels like the smallest thing. If somebody hasn't done the work and the reflection, it can look like that. And that person, you know, there were a few people who were not women that complained about that, but it was only me was the person that I think he was particularly angry about. And that continued. He ended up telling people in the organisation, warning them about me and, and this kind of stuff. And you just saw how that, in a sense, fragility plays out and that person can't let it go. So I think unless we realise that this is not personal attacks and it also comes from a place of hurt if we don't feel represented or we don't see ourselves and it takes a lot to be able to raise these, if, that, if somebody can take that with compassion, that means so much because I don't think anyone wants to just go around hurting people or offending people or saying whether it be events or organisations, you're wrong and bad. It's saying we can do better and if we can embrace that, that we can do better, that's 
I think something powerful we can all do and to, to validate those fears and to actually listen. That's really powerful. Yeah, and also get really curious around why we're triggered. You know, speaking as a white man, if I'm receiving something, a bit of feedback from someone, whether it's, you know, event I've coordinated or whatever, and I go, oh, I really want to be defensive here. I actually really want to protect what I've done. Actually getting curious as to why that is. Why am I looking to push back and, you know, call up X person and talk about, you know, Yasmin? Why is that? Let's get curious. And I think that skill set to have external stimulus come into you to pause to dissociate from that that stimulus, reflect, get curious about it, observe it, and then take a measured movement is really rare. But again, really important, not only for equality, but just for life, you know, because <laughs> we're constantly surrounded by things. And I think, again, we come back to this being a muscle. And I think if you look at, you know, old mate who's kicking up the song and dance about it, it's, it's obviously triggered him. Totally. And, you know, it's great. Get curious about it. And it's always a work in progress, even for me. So I think about the safety, respect and equity campaign I was on, which I'm really, really proud of of the message and the purpose. But there were people who raised, there aren't many diverse people in this group. I was one of me alongside Maddie Di Rosario, woman of colour, disabled athlete, you know, Lyris Barrent, amazing First Nations woman. But it could have been better. And immediately seeing that criticism, even as a woman of colour, I felt like, hang on for a second, I tried my best. You know, I was raising things about intersectionality and diversity. You know, I felt really frustrated and upset. But I realised, you know what, fair point, fair point. And I think I'm still, you know, working through that and thinking, well, how can we do better next time? And there is going to be a next time and whatever that might be. So for me, it's, you know, even as an advocate, I have these moments too and we're all being challenged in, in different ways. But the point of debate and discourse is, is not just to fight with each other, it's to just sit back and reflect on things and put our hands up and sometimes admit when we're wrong. And that's why uh, these conversations are so important right now. Like I'm hopefully learning off each other, but I know I'm definitely learning so much inside of this. And I just hope we can create more environments, more situations where we can have discourse like this and it not be seen as something like where men are scared to ask a question because they might get it wrong or the language might not be politically correct. I think it's really, really important for just the leadership of this country, let alone the people and families in this country. Totally. We, we kind of mentioned the names like Grace, Chanel, Brittany Higgins and some other names you just mentioned there. And what's it been like to be amongst this new wave of young feminist leaders? Really cool. <laughs> <laughs> I love them. I think they are so incredible because, you know, it's speaking to every one of those women, Grace, Chanel, Brittany, you see just how much it takes to come up and speak about this. And what kind of struck me through meeting all of them is that they didn't ask to be an advocate. Many do not want to be advocates. They just end up being advocates because they see the problems in front of them and they say it's time that we address them. And especially for people um, like Grace and Brittany, it's a whole lot of trauma that they're bearing and is on their shoulders. And then to have the bravery to bring that into the public eye, for it to be picked apart and scrutinised a lot of the time very unhelpfully by people who haven't experienced something as traumatic as, as rape, that's huge. And what, what I think is really incredible about them is that they're redefining, I think, what change is looking like in this country. There's, I think, especially over time, I've realised that many of us are, are constrained in what we can say. There are organisations funded by government or reliant on being bipartisan to have support. So here we are with two 
young women who can come forward and actually speak about what we're, many of us are actually thinking. And what was incredible about seeing the way that they operate is that it cuts right down to the bone of these problems. And the way that politicians can talk about it is that they used floral words and lots of you know, promises, but not really promises, not actually meaningful reform. And Brittany said, we want actions, not words. So it's too often that, that again, women have to come forward and, and plead and demand for change and maybe decision makers listen for a second and then don't do anything as a result. But I hope working with these young women, we can keep that pressure on and going into the federal election, that voters can realise that this is a major issue. This isn't just an optional thing, that having justice for the women of this country and in all of that diversity and what that means is important. And frankly, to be disgusted at many of the decision makers who turned away and belittled or refused to listen to these young women who are coming up and so bravely speaking out. And it points to a deeper problem, but also these people represent us and we have the say here. It was interesting actually seeing last year, we saw a lot more young women get mobilised and engaged, but there wasn't as much of a change in young men, including a change for young men calling themselves a feminist, including a change for how men were going to vote or, or think about these problems, not just young men, men across generations. So, you know, hopefully I think with this momentum, I really want men to feel like this isn't just something that's passing them by or that they're really active participants in this conversation. And yes, including a space of privilege and accountability, but also to feel like they can support and listen and think about how it affects them too. So I really like being with those young women. I think they're challenging what leadership looks like. And for me at 17, thinking that leadership was a tall dude in a suit with a firm handshake, it's redefined what that looks like in my eyes. And I just think they're, they're awesome. Very special to hear that. Really important to raise and people can do their own research about this, but you know, more diversity, more equality, we all win. It's like pick any area, whether it's your business profitability, the creativity in your organization, your happiness inside of your life, you know, your family dynamics. It's like more equality is better for all. And I think there is this sometimes this story that by oh it's it's really like that sometimes to the privileged equality feels like oppression so sometimes the privileged equality feels like oppression so how does it that we can create spaces where people realize that when we women win or marginalized communities win we all actually win and it's that really that for me it's that that rising tide raises all ships and you know there's if you need more role models around you if you're looking who are the men that are still representing these values around equality or feminism whatever you want to say it's like well make yourself the role model you know we have the internet as well so go and find get educated be the role model it's not about virtue signaling or showing how woke you are but to your point it is deeds not words deeds not words as we wrap up, is there anything else you wanted to share just around the movements you're part of, you know, anything you've mentioned that have really benefited your relationship with your partner and his education journey? Is there any closing sentiments or reflections? Well, as you were talking about that, I thought of the word effervescence, which is the idea that it's, you know, let's say a beautiful stream of water bubbling up and the way that that empowers all of us. And for too long, we think of equality as something that's trickled down, that we start, you know, from those who are powerful and it trickles down. But I think if we start with the people who are disadvantaged in our science, and there are many different groups, to, to just be focusing there, as you said, that actually does help all of us. It isn't just 
having people in a, in a space to fill a quota and ticking a box, the way that our systems are around us, they're not normal. They're not right if, it, if people don't feel like they have a place, including in politics. That's not good for our democracy. If we want our democracy to work, it has to involve all of us and, and what, whatever that looks like. So, you know, thinking about equality as effervescence helps us to redefine what it can and, and should look like. So I think, you know, I have... Um, I'm so encouraged by many people I've met in this journey, both men, women and, and people in between, who are willing to always be open-minded to what the world can look like and, and to listen. And the power of doing that is, is something that every single person can do in their own life and to water that plant in whatever space of grass, wherever you might occupy. Always, I think, value that and believe in your own agency to, to help change things. It's a beautiful reflection. Yeah, I really believe that we have a responsibility to leave the world better than what we inherited. And I just want to say thank you for playing your role in that. I know my little sisters were stoked when I said that we were hanging out. So I just want to say thank you so much for your time. Thank you also just for the stories that you shared. Just being so willing to, I guess, dip into your own inner world and to share that as well because I know it does take energy and and that can be exhausting so I just want to say thank you so much for that and I think you're on an incredible trajectory so looking forward to watching being a part of it and thank you again for your time thank you so much thank you so much for listening if you enjoyed the podcast or got some value out of it we'd love your help to grow this thing you can subscribe to the channel share it with your mates or show us some love on socials we want to impact as many lives as possible and we'd love your help in getting this out there thanks again